divide us, to distract us, to tempt us, God, to lead us astray. And God, I just pray you said in your word that you reign supreme over all principalities and powers. You said that you reign supreme. Lord, you said that you put them to a shame. You had the victory over them, God. You did it at the cross. And I just pray that you would exalt that truth in this church. God, exalt the truth that you reign over all principalities and powers and that none could come against your church. You promised, Lord, you promised, God, that you would build your church and the gates of Hades could not stand against it. And I just pray, God, that you would do that with us. God, thank you for making us aware of the, the, the warfare all around us, God. Help us, oh Lord. I pray that you help us to be a family, to love each other deeply. God, teach us to be a family, to love each other deeply, Lord. God, teach us how to care for each other. Teach us how to forbear and forgive one another when we do each other wrong. Teach us this, God. And please, God, protect us from division and slander. And God, as we raise up as a unit in your name and for your glory, God, help us to spread your gospel, to advance your kingdom, Lord, to the ends of the earth through this church. God, we are small and we are so weak. We're so weak, Lord. You've given us a simple command to make disciples of all nations and we just confess back to you, God, that we can't do it outside of the power of your spirit to help. So God, we lift up our voice to you. Help us, oh God. Help us to make disciples. Help us, God, to proclaim your gospel. Help us to preach your word. Fill us with boldness, God. Fill us with, with, with the same burden, God, that you have. Help us to feel the things that you feel toward a lost world, God. Fill us with the compassion that you have, Lord Jesus. Make us fishers of men. We know we need your help, Lord. And we praise you that you promise it. You said that when we come to you right now in this, to this throne of grace, that you pour out grace and mercy to help us. And I praise you for that. And I stand on your word, God, that you would do that, that you would help us, Lord. Please help us, Lord. God, I pray that you would grow us as worshipers. Lord, you said for all of eternity, for all of eternity, we're going to get to worship you in fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. And I praise you for that, God. Thank you for pulling out so many people in this room, in this gym right now, for pulling us out of darkness, 
bringing us into your marvelous light and allowing us to exalt your name into eternity. And God, I pray, please, let us get a taste of that now. Teach us in this life, in our homes, in the secret places, here and now, and as we gather together in public and corporate worship, God, teach us to be worshipers of you. Show us your glory, God, and give us the right response deep in our souls, God, that in our, in our bones, God, deep in our bones, we would burn with passion for you. God, I praise you that you've done these things. You have given us such a taste of these things already. And we say more, Lord Jesus, more. We want more of you, Christ. Give us more of you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your help. God, now as we look to your word and your this record about you rising up out of a grave from an empty and, and making a tomb empty. God, as we look at this in your word, exalt your holy name. Help us to see it. God, help us to get past just the, 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 just the facts and just the superficial knowledge, God. And help us as we look at your word right now to see you and your glory and your power as the Son of God who reigns. Stir our hearts to worship you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. If you're not already, already there, go ahead and turn there. So we're going from verse 40 all the way to chapter 16, verse 8. All the way to chapter 16, verse 8. I'll go ahead and tell you this real quick. This is pretty awesome, right? We've come now to the last section of Mark's gospel. We've been in the gospel of Mark. Some of you might not know this. We've been in the gospel of Mark for over a year. And now we've come to the last section of Mark's gospel. And this is awesome, okay? This is awesome. Now, some of you might be wondering, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about verse 9 through 20? It's not the last section. What about verse 9 through 20? And I want to say this very quickly and move on because Dustin's going to dig into it in more detail next week. But if you look in most of your Bibles, verse 9 through 20 is actually either in brackets or there's some kind of subscript there that tells you that this, this was actually, that section, verse 9 through 20, was not actually in the original manuscripts, okay, which is a big deal to us because we want what Mark wrote. Nothing added to it, nothing taken away from it. We want what Mark wrote, what the Holy Spirit of God through Mark wrote. And so if you, if you look at most of um, most commentaries, most people that do research on uh, manuscript research and things like that, what you'll see is the, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of people say that this last section, verse 9 through 20, is not actually in the original manuscripts. And I, I believe it's because if you look at Mark chapter 16, verse 8, it has a very abrupt ending. And we'll talk more about that later, but it has a very abrupt ending. So it seems like some people thought we want to get together and try to pull something together to kind of round this off. So let me say three things about that real quick so that we can move on, okay? Three things. I really want to move on. Number one is this, Dustin's going to fill you in with some more detail about that next week, 
Okay, so if you're wondering, it's the first time you heard that, he'll fill you in some more of that next week. Number two, this abrupt ending, and what's the reason for this abrupt ending? I'm going to dig into that a little bit more later on. And number three is this. I love the authenticity of the Bible. I love it. This is just authentic, authentic truth of God. Okay, we, are, we do not have a, a, a grouping of books and writings that we're just told to blindly believe that it's from God. That's not what we have. We have, a group of, we have a group of books and writings that have gone through the most intense scrutiny thinkable, that you can think of. It's unthinkable how much scrutiny that this word has gone through. And then through that, we, do, we determine, and God teaches, this is his word. And I praise God for that. So things like this at the end of Mark make me praise him. So I want to mention that quickly, and we're going to move on, okay? So here's what I want to do. As we move into this last section, verse 40, chapter 15, verse 40, to chapter 16, verse 8, as we move into this section, let me ask you something real quick. We've, looked, we've been through this whole gospel together, okay? We've seen from the beginning of his ministry all the way up to what we're about to see in his resurrection, we've been through this together. What are you going to do with the man Christ Jesus? And let me just ask you that from the beginning. What are you going to do with Jesus? The one that we've read about, the one that we've been talking about here through this gospel tomorrow for over a year, what are you going to do with him? What do you do with a man, Christ Jesus? Think about what he's done. He's healed lepers. He's given the blind sight. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's walked on water. He calmed a megastorm with a word. He saved souls. He drank the cup of your wrath that you deserve. What are you going to do with this man? What do you do with him? How do you respond? We're coming up to the last section of the gospel of Mark. How do you respond? I mean it seriously. How do you respond to Christ Jesus? What do you do with this man? He said many things. He's commanded every person in this room to forsake all and follow him. What are you going to do with his commands? What do you do with Christ? He's claimed to be the son of God. He's claimed to be God incarnate, Christ, the only savior and the only one where you can find hope. And so what do you do with Christ? You have got to respond to him. You might not like him, but you cannot ignore Jesus, okay? What are you going to do with Christ Jesus the Lord? And I want to give you another reason. Maybe you're walking through this, and you're thinking, well, I don't have to do anything with Jesus because he just seems like this historical figure who did some amazing things, of course, said some amazing things, and he's got this example. And so maybe you think, well, I don't have to give a response. Well, listen to me. What we're about to dig into is that that one that we've been talking about, he's still alive. He's risen from the grave, and he's alive right now. He knows what you're thinking as I speak. And so you have to do something with him. What are you going to do with Christ? Let's read Mark 15. Last section, verse 40. We're going to read all the way to chapter 16, verse 8. Read it with me. This is the word of God. This is glorious, and it's serious, Verse 40, there were also women looking on from afar, 
among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Alas, and of Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there's this group of women, they see him hanging on a cross. Verse 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning a centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, thought, then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which, it, which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and the Mary of and Mary, the mother of Joses, observed where he was laid. So what you have here is the tomb gets filled up with the body of Jesus. They see him hanging on a cross, and it takes him from dead hanging on a cross into a tomb in those verses. Now, starting in chapter 16, verse 1, we're going to see that tomb that just got filled empty. Now, when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb... They saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So here's what I want to do. If you look at your sheet there, I want to tell you the breakdown. On your study sheet there, I just want to tell you the breakdown, and then we'll move right into unpacking this section of Scripture. Here's the breakdown. Chapter 15, verse 40 through 45, we have the surety of his death. He really died. He really died on the cross. A real death. We're going to see the women confirm it in verse 40 and 41. We're going to see Joseph of Arimathea confirm it in verse 42, 43. In verse 44 and 45, we're going to see a professional executioner confirm it. Okay? And then in our second section, verses, uh, chapter 15, verse 46 to 47, it's there on your sheet. We're going to see the surety of his burial. He was really buried in a tomb. He was really, his body was really placed into the tomb. Joseph is going to confirm it. In verse 46 and in verse 47, 
those same women are going to confirm it. He was buried in that tomb. And then in the last section, verses, chapter 16, verse 1 through 8, we're going to see the surety of his resurrection. He really rose from the dead. It really happened. He's risen indeed. And we're going to see the angel confirm it and these women confirm it. It's awesome. All right, so let's start off with the surety of Jesus' death, verses 40 through 45. We're going to see the women, Joseph, and the professional execution, okay? The surety of Jesus' death. Let's start with the women. These women here that are just mentioned in verse 40 and 41, they are eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus. Eyewitnesses. They saw it. He really died. <clears throat> the first passage says, verse 40, there were also women looking on from afar. As they looked on from afar, what did they see? What did they see as they looked on from afar? They see Jesus hanging, lifeless, dead on the cross. They see Jesus body limp upon the cross and they're looking at it with their eyes. The one that they had followed when they were in Galilee, the one they had followed as they came to Jerusalem. You see that in verse 41. And the one whom they considered to be the Christ, the King of Israel. And now he's dead. They're looking at him. Can you imagine the sorrow? Can you imagine the sadness? The king is dead. The one they followed, they gave their life to follow him. And he's dead, hanging on the cross. They're looking at him. What did they see? It says they were looking on from afar. What did they see? They saw a man who had claimed to be Christ in humiliation, absolute humiliation, bloody, lifeless, forsaken. They had witnessed him being nailed to the tree. They saw it happen. They saw the nails go through his flesh into the tree. They witnessed the darkness fall down over the land for three hours right in the middle of the day. They saw it. They saw the darkness lift and the sun shine again and he's still hanging there. They see him. He's hanging there. The Christ Jesus, their Lord, still hanging there. And shortly after they witnessed the one who's hanging there, think about it, his festering wounds pulling down on the weight of his body, and they're seeing this, and as they, they look on, they hear their, ser their, their Savior's final sermon, and he lifts himself up, up on those festering wounds. He says, it is finished! And it says, he says it loud, he screams it, and they see it all go down. They're watching it from afar. He bows his head. He's out. He's dead. What are these women? It says they're looking on from afar. They're looking on from afar. I don't think they realized this at the time. I don't believe they realized this at the time, but what they were actually seeing, if you think about it, what were they seeing? They were seeing the record of their sins laid upon the Savior. It's their sin, and it was being laid on Christ. Their sin, along with many other people's sins, laid upon the cross. And when that darkness fell, I don't think they, they realized it, but they were seeing the wrath of Almighty God fall down on the Savior instead of on them. They saw the wrath bearer. 
They saw the sin bearer hanging on the cross, even if they didn't realize it. When he says it is finished, he's saying, I've paid your debt. It's their debt that he was talking about. I paid your debt. It's done. Sin is through. Death is no more. I paid it. I finished the work. And that was for them. And they're looking at it. And they probably don't even realize it. They knew. They may not have known what was going on in the background when the sin was being laid upon him and their wrath was being poured out on him. But they knew. They knew that the one they loved the one they followed is hanging on the cross and they see him. They knew that. Earlier in the day, earlier in this day, because Jesus hung on the cross for several hours, earlier in this day, we see from John chapter 19 that those same ladies were actually up a lot closer. Even so close to Jesus that they could converse with him. They could say something to him for just a moment. But now they've backed off and they're far away. They know who's hanging on that cross. They know who's hanging on the cross. Notice that these women are specifically named. They're identified with details. They're specifically named. And this happens three times in this passage. It happens at the death of Christ, at the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Mark's trying to tell you something here. They're specifically named, verse 40, Mary Magdalene. The second lady, Mary the mother of James the last and of Joses. The third lady, Salome, specifically named ladies. And this happens again. That happens right there at the death of Christ hanging on the cross. It happens again in verse 47 at the burial of Christ in the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie. This is very rare that he would name them so specifically in the book of Mark. He doesn't do that. So why does he do it here? You see it again at the coming resurrection, chapter 16, verse 1. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. He's specifically naming these ladies. He's putting them forward. Here are the eyewitnesses to the death of Christ. He really died to the burial of Christ in the tomb. I saw him placed there and to the resurrection of Jesus. The tomb was empty. These are the eyewitnesses Mark is laying out for us right here. Notice the eyewitness language. Notice the eyewitness language. Verse 40, looking on, looking on. Verse, verse 47, observed. They observed. Verse 4, they looked up and they saw. They're seeing, they're looking, they're eyewitnesses. Verse 5, they saw. Verse 6, the angel tells them, see, see, look, get your eyes out. See the place where they laid him. These are eyewitnesses. Verse 7, you will see him. You will see him. So verse 40 and 41 is setting before us these eyewitnesses, these ladies, they saw him. He really died. They saw him hanging upon the cross. And it says in verse 41, many other women with them, many other women with them. Now you imagine being a person in Rome. We've talked about this a lot and it's true that this gospel has a real big lean toward these Christians that are in Rome. Okay. So you imagine you're, you're a person in Rome and you show up at the gathering that morning and we got Mark's letter. 
We got Mark's gospel about the Christ, and it begins to be read that, that morning. And they're reading, and they're reading, starting in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16. And they're just reading the gospel of Mark, and you're listening, and you're zoned in. And then you get to this last part. And, and, it, and, it, and he rose from the dead. And this is the eyewitnesses, and it mentions their name, Mary Magdalene. And Mary, you know the mother of this person and this person, and Salome. And it mentions them specifically, and what do you want to do? And you're that person in Rome, and you want to shoot out of that meeting, and you want to go straight back to Galilee, and you want to look at them, because they're still alive when this is, when this is going down. And he's, we want to look at them and say, tell me what you saw. I want to know what you saw. I want to hear from your own mouth. These are the eyewitnesses laid out before us. Now, before moving on to the next eyewitness to Jesus' death, I want to mention something real quick. This is a really good place where you can see, when you think about the, the women being put forward as eyewitnesses, women being put forward as eyewitnesses, this screams authenticity of the gospel of Mark. It screams it. And you say, why? Because in this time, women were considered, in this culture, for the most part, if you read this historians, Josephus and others, women were considered second-class citizens, and their testimony did not go in the court of law. It didn't go. Listen to Josephus. He said this, <clears throat> let not the testimony of women be admitted. Or in the Talmud, it says this, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. Now, I'm not saying I believe this. It's what they said. Not me, it's what they said. But in this time, you think about it. If you're going to deceive some people and you're going to lie about this Christ who rose from the dead and you're going to write a book that's going to write, it's going to show that, that he rose from the dead, here's what you don't do. You don't make women your main group of eyewitnesses. You just don't do that. And so it just screams authenticity. He's not deceiving you. You might think he's wrong, but you cannot say he's trying to deceive you right now as you read the Gospel of Mark. There's an authenticity that gets screamed from this truth that women are the main sources of eyewitnesses right here. Now let's go to the next eyewitness, Joseph of Arimathea. It's verse 42 and 43. Let's read verse 42 and 43. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, so now we're introduced to a couple of things. We're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, eyewitness to the death of Christ. And we're also introduced to some, some ideas about the timing of Jesus' death and his burial. We get some insight into the timing of his death and burial. It says right here, Jesus is dead. It says at evening of Friday, that's the prepar it says preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. That's the day before Saturday. So Friday, Jesus is dead hanging on a cross, about to be buried on Friday evening. We get some idea about the timing here. Now, I think this is interesting. He's in the tomb on Friday. He's there through the Sabbath on Saturday. 
and he's there on Sunday. And about 12 hours into Sunday, he rises from the grave. He's there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three days, just like he prophesied, just like he said he would do. So who is this man, Joseph of Arimathea? He's obviously from Arimathea. That's obvious. If you read uh, Luke 23, 51, it says that's a city of the Jews. So he's from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, very close to Jerusalem, it seems. We see also he's, verse 43, a prominent council member. This man was a member of the Sanhedrin. This man was a member of the religious leadership among the Jews that ripped open Christ's back, killed him, took play, delivered him up to be hung upon a cross. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. If you look at Luke 23, 51, it says he did not consent to their decision to kill Jesus. But here's this man, Joseph of Arimathea, a very successful, very prominent council member in the Sanhedrin. He's a rich man. Matthew 27, 57, Joseph Arimathea is a rich man. It says in Luke 23, 50, he's a good and a just man. He's a good and a just man. Matthew 27, 57 also says he's a disciple of Jesus. Joseph is a disciple of Jesus, and we know from the, the account in John 19 that not only is he a disciple of Jesus, but he is a secret disciple of Jesus. Why? For fear of the Jews. He was afraid of the Jews, and so he's a secret disciple of Jesus, but now he's about to come out of hiding, and he's about to make it known to all that he is devoted to Christ even in his death. It says right here in Matthew, uh, Mark 15, 43, waiting for the kingdom of God. He's a man waiting for the kingdom of God. Surely he saw Christ Jesus as the king, and now his king is dead upon a cross, and he sees it. Most importantly, Joseph is an eyewitness to the death of Jesus. He saw Jesus breathe his last. He immediately goes to Pilate, he asked, he's going to go out in the open here. Here I am, I'm a follower of Christ. He's going to ask Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus so that he doesn't get buried in a common grave or thrown into a fire? He's going to get the body of Jesus and bury him in his own tomb. Now it says in verse 43 that taking courage, you see where it says taking courage? He needed some boldness. He was had to take courage. Joseph went to Pilate and requested the body. Now, why would he need to take courage? Why would he need to be bold? Why would he need some bravery here to go to Pilate and request for the body? And the reality is, is now, if he does this, he can no longer, he just said he's afraid of those Jewish authorities. I just showed you that. It's in John 19. He's afraid of them. Now he can't hide behind his riches. Now he can't hide behind his prominence. Now he can't hide behind his success or his comfort. No, he's coming out in the open, and he might lose it all. He might lose his position. He might lose his riches, lose everything, but he's going to come out right now. And so it takes courage. It takes courage to do it. One more observation before we move on to the next eyewitness. Let me make one more observation here. I want you to see that according to these eyewitnesses, Jesus really died and it was a real body put into the grave, a real heart, real blood flowing through his veins and he really died. 
the heart really stopped. The blood stopped flowing. And he's put into a tomb. And you see that from verse 43. Pilate, he asked, he went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The body of Jesus. If you go to verse 45, the ESV says the corpse. The corpse. It's a real body. It's a real death. Third eyewitness here, a professional executioner. Eyewitness to the death of Jesus. Verse 44 and 45, read it with me. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he, when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. When he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So we see Joseph, he goes to Pilate, he asks for the body. He wants the body, okay? Pilate's response is he's astonished that Jesus is already dead so soon. Jesus is dead already. Now, why would Pilate be surprised? And the reason is because it's very common. It's a very common thing that for several days, a man would hang upon a cross and suffer before he finally gave it up and died. And here's Jesus, about six hours on the cross, and he's dead, and Pilate is surprised. Now, let me give you kind of a side note. Here's a truth that I want you to derive from that, okay? This short time on the cross, here's a truth I want you to derive from that. Here's the truth. Jesus remained in control. Jesus sovereignly remained in control, even on his bloody cross, and he gave up his spirit when the work was completed. Jesus remained in sovereign control and he gave up his spirit when the work was completed. And here's why I say that, three reasons. Number one is what we just read. The shortness of that time that he spent on the cross and even Pilate is surprised about it. Number two is this little phrase that we hear from the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Evidence that Jesus is sovereignly in control and he gives up his spirit in this moment. And number three is this, that he still has the physical strength within him, in himself at, at his very last breath to lift himself up on the cross and scream with a loud voice, it is finished. And all this lines up to tell us that he is sovereignly in control. Even while he hangs on his bloody cross, he is in control. He gives up his spirit when he is ready, whenever the work is finished. I love this reality about Jesus. I love it. For three hours in darkness, he hangs on the cross. The wrath of God is being poured out on him instead of us. He drank down the bitter cup of our wrath until it was completely through. And when the sun lifted and the darkness went away, he cries out, it's finished, and he says it's done, and he bows his head and he dies. Nobody takes his life from him. He gives it up himself. And this is an awesome reality. Back to verse 44 and 45, Pilate, this is our eyewitness, he has to get confirmation. He's surprised. He's already dead? Yes, he's already dead. Well, how does he know? He, he calls to the centurion. You see it in verse 45. When he found out from the centurion. So you think about it. He sends to the centurion, this professional uh, executioner, and he sends to him to go find out, is he dead? Is he really dead upon 
that cross. He does a formal investigation procedure right here with this professional executioner. So, the, so think about it. This, this executioner, this centurion, he goes to the place where they're hanging on the cross. Three men there hanging on the cross. According to other accounts, we know that he went to one that's beside Jesus and he cracked the bones in his legs so that he could no longer pull up and he died quicker. Then he went to the other one beside Jesus, which by the way, is the one who Christ had promised you're going to be with me in paradise. In just a moment, you're going to be with me in paradise. And here comes the centurion and he's going to speed up the process and he cracks the bone in his leg as well. And he hangs there and he dies and he looks at Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he notices. And this guy has seen plenty. He knows a dead man when he sees it. He has seen crucifixions again and again and again. He's a professional executioner. And he looks at Jesus and he's already dead upon the tree. He doesn't have to crack the bone in his legs. But just to make sure, he picks up a spear. And he drives that spear and he rams it through his gut. He rams it through his side. And out comes, out flows blood and water and then this centurion reports back to Pilate and he says yes that man's dead he is dead indeed so here we have a professional executioner eyewitness of the real death of Jesus okay so so he receives that confirmation Pilate does and then he turns to, to Joseph of Arimathea and he says he grants him the body you can go get the body the body's yours so this is our three groups of eyewitnesses of the death of Jesus. The women, the Joseph of Arimathea, and professional executioner. Let's go to the next part, verse 46 and 47. Here we're going to see the surety of Jesus' burial. He was really buried in that tomb. Let's read it, verse 46. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses observed where he was laid. Okay, so we got two eyewitnesses, Joseph of Arimathea and we've got two groups and we have this group of women. And we actually know that Nicodemus from other accounts, Nicodemus is with Joseph of Arimathea as well. So we had this group of men, this group of women as eyewitnesses to the burial of Jesus. Okay, so you think about it. What had to be going through Joseph's mind? He's leaving Pilate now. He's headed to go get the body. What's got to go to his mind? He looks up and he sees those men hanging there on that cross, dead. Bodies are hanging there, limp, lifeless. He's got the fine linen, but it says right there in the scripture, verse 46, took him down. Joseph had to take him down from the cross. Joseph had to get, let that sink. Joseph had to take him down. It says he took him down. He had to take him down from the cross. So he heads into Golgotha. He sees him hanging there lifeless and limp. There's a new wound in Jesus' side now, blood and water flowing out. He sees it. Looks like a spear was rammed into his side. He sees it. He's looking at it. Joseph has to force, forcefully wrench and pull his hands and his feet off the head of those nails, get his body off the cross, pick up his body with the help of Nicodemus, maybe with the help of some servants, we don't know, and take his body and pick it up and carry it to a, to a tomb that is nearby, his own tomb. 
You imagine what this would have been like. What would have been going through his mind? He finally makes it to the tomb. Joseph makes it to the tomb. He's got the body of Jesus. And it says he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. This would have been a large tomb cut into rock. It says a few verses later that the stone that rolled over it was a very large stone that three women couldn't even push off. Needed multiple men to do it. So they would have put it in this tomb. This is more than likely a family tomb where several people would have been buried. But we know that this is a new tomb from John chapter 19 and the account there. This is a new tomb. Nobody's been laid in this tomb before. This is a rich man's tomb. We know from John 19 that this tomb is very close to the place where he was crucified. So it's right on the borders of Jerusalem. So Jesus' body, I want you to think about it. According to normal custom... These, these criminals being crucified, their body would have been burned somewhere or buried into a common grave somewhere with criminals. And here we see Jesus buried in a rich man's tomb like a king. And this is all according to Old Testament prophecy. Listen to Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth. How did Isaiah know that? How did Isaiah know that? That he'd be put in the rich man's tomb. How in the world does Isaiah know that? And so, you, so there you got Jesus. He's laying there. He's in the tomb. The stone is rolled in front of it. He's dead. There's been eyewitnesses to see it. We've got Jesus and the men, excuse me, uh, Joseph and the men that are with him as eyewitnesses. You got the women as eyewitnesses coming up next. Look at verse 47. It says that these women observed where he was laid. Observed where he was laid. So here's what we got. These women, they were looking on as he was at the cross. He's hanging limp on the cross and they see it there. And as he's hanging on the cross, they see him yell at his finish. They see a man come and jab a spear through his side. They see it all. And then they see a man that they don't know. Joseph of Arimathea, they probably don't know him. And he comes up and he begins to wrench his hands and feet off of that cross, pick up his body and carry it to the tomb. And these women see it and they begin to follow him. Where's he going with the body of our Lord? Where's he going with the body of Christ? And so they begin, they begin to follow him to the tomb. And these women are standing there at the tomb, they see him wrap the, cor the corpse in fine linen. They see it. They see him place him in the tomb. And they see him roll the stone over the tomb. At this point, these women would not have been far away. According to the accounts we have here, Matthew 27, 6, uh, excuse me, Matthew 27, 26 says, they were sitting in front of the tomb. They have drawn near now. They're right there where he's being buried. They're sitting in front of the tomb. Mark 15, 47, where we're at says, they observed where he was laid. They observed where he was put in the tomb. Luke 23, 55 says, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after them. So they followed after Joseph and they observed the tomb and how, not only where he was laid, but how his body was laid. These women are eyewitnesses to the burial of Jesus. And after that stone's rolled in front, it says that these women, they scoot off, they head back so that they can get, they, they themselves can get uh, oils and spices so they can come back after the Sabbath is over and they can anoint this dead body that they just observed 
put into a tomb. Okay, so quick recap is this. It is a confirmed fact that Christ Jesus lived and that Christ Jesus was crucified on the cross. Nobody is legitimately contesting that. Nobody. Biblically, extra biblically, it all comes together, even like non-Christian authors like Josephus, that Christ Jesus has died. He lived and he died. To deny that is intellectual suicide. That's Recap number one. Recap number two is this. It's a confirmed fact that Jesus, after he was crucified, was buried. He was laid into a tomb as a dead man, heart not beating. Placed in the tomb. We're going to go now to chapter 16. And in verse 1 through 8, we're going to see the surety of Jesus' resurrection. The surety of Jesus' resurrection. In chapter 16, uh, verse 1, let's read it. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Siloam, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. They bought spices when the Sabbath was passed so that they could come and anoint him, it says. Okay, so it says in verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed. Jesus was buried on Friday. He stayed in the grave on the Sabbath on Saturday. He was in the grave on Sunday. It's three days, and he rose on Sunday. So when the Sabbath was passed, this is the first day of the week that we've come to now. These women brought spices. They're going to anoint him, okay? So we've got three days here. We've been given Friday, and what went down, he's dead, he's buried, and now we're given Sunday where he's going to be raised up from the grave. What happened on the Sabbath? What happened on Sunday while Jesus remained in the tomb? What happened on this day? And we know from Matthew 27, verse 62 to 65, that the religious leaders, the ones who who played the role in, in framing Jesus and killing Jesus, these religious leaders, they go to Pilate and they ask him, they say, we want you to put some Roman soldiers around that tomb. Why? So that none of the followers of Jesus come steal his body away and say that he had risen from the dead. Now, in doing this, in doing this, they actually strengthen the surety that Christ Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, why do I say that? Because had they left it open and said, oh, no, don't even roll the stone or just leave it there. They could have very easily claimed one of the disciples came and stole the body away, but now they can't do that. They've got, a, they've got soldiers, Roman soldiers, standing there waiting, making sure nobody, the thing is sealed off, making sure nobody, nobody comes in and steals, steals the body so that now when the body's not there, guess what? They can't say that anybody stole it. At least not credibly. Verse 2, chapter 16, verse 2 says, Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So the sun's coming up. These ladies are heading in Sunday morning. They're heading in to the tomb. They're thinking that they're going to anoint a dead body. This is what's on their mind. Mark 16, verse 3, it says, And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? 
Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb from us? These ladies know that the, that the stone is too large. They know that the stone is too large and that they can't move it. But here's what they don't know. That before they got to the tomb, something has happened. Christ Jesus has risen from the dead. They know that they can't move the stone, but they don't realize that Christ Jesus has risen. And also before they got to the tomb, a powerful angel. I mean an angel that when he descended down to heaven onto this gravesite, an earthquake happened. And the Roman soldiers begin to shake in fear and they fell down like dead men. And this angel has sat down, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And he didn't roll it back to let Jesus out. He rolled it back to let them in so that they could see. Nothing can hold Jesus. Jesus didn't need angels to come let him out of the tomb. Acts chapter 2, it says, Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he could be held by it. The angels didn't come to let him out. The angels came to move that stone so eyewitnesses could go in and see. Nobody's in the tomb. Where's the body of Christ? Chapter 16, verse 4 and 5, it says, but when they, that's the women, when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So they draw near to this gravesite. They see that the tomb, the stone on the tomb is already rolled away. They enter in this, this tomb, they enter into the tomb, and what do they see when they get there? A young man clothed in long white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. It says they were alarmed. It's literally to be struck with terror. They are struck with terror. They are, they're thrown into amazement at this moment. Now, why are they alarmed? Why are they alarmed? Because when you pull in these other accounts, at least one reason, when you pull in the other accounts of the resurrection here, you see that that one sitting there was an angel, the same angel, one of these angels that had descended and created an earthquake and made Roman soldiers shake and their face and, and their, their clothes are shining like lightning in this moment. Not to mention the even more amazing reality that the body's not there. And so they're astonished, they're alarmed, they're beside themselves, they're struck with terror. In verse 6 and 7, it says, But he, that's the angel, but he, the angel, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen! He's not here! See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. He's risen. So they go in. They're already alarmed before he even opens his mouth. And then the angel speaks in six phrases. Six phrases come out of this angel's mouth. First phrase is this. Do not be alarmed. He comforts them. He wants to calm them down. He sees that they're alarmed, terrified. Number two, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. I know who you're here to seek. You've come to the right place. You're not in the wrong tomb. Number three, and I say it loud because it has an exclamation point in my Bible. He is risen. 
This angel very likely had observed. No human actually saw Jesus come out of the tomb. But this angel had very likely seen it, right? Peter tells us in his letters that the angels, they desired to look into these things. What things? The sufferings and the glories that would follow. They desired to look in. Very likely saw him rise from the grave. And now he gets the privilege. He gets the privilege of coming to these unbelieving, unfaithful disciples. And he gets to make the announcement. He gets to herald the truth that Christ Jesus is not in the grave anymore. He's risen, he says. He is risen. He is overjoyed. The angel is overjoyed. He gets to tell the unbelieving disciples that he's not in the grave. You don't have to be sad anymore. Jesus told you that you would be sorrowful, but your joy would come. Just like a pregnant lady having that baby in pain, but then that child comes. You remember when he said that? He said, joy's coming. He's risen from the grave. Number four, he said this. He is not here. In case you didn't get what I was saying. He's not in the tomb. In case you didn't understand it when I said he's risen. You saw them put him in the tomb. You saw it. And he ain't there no more. He ain't in the tomb anymore. He's not here. Number five. See. See. Here's his eyewitnesses. These women, his eyewitnesses. See. The place where they laid him, he wants these eyewitnesses to look at the empty tomb. Get your eyes on this tomb where nobody lays. Look at it. These ladies had been eyewitnesses every step of the way. Eyewitnesses at the cross. Eyewitnesses at the burial. And now every step of the way, he wants them to be eyewitnesses that the tomb is empty and he is risen from the dead. Sixth statement is this. And the and this is the last statement, by the way. He's going to push them in this statement. This is verse 7. He's going to push them in this statement towards further eyewitness. There's going to be more eyewitness account. Listen. But go. So he tells these ladies, go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. You won't just see an empty tomb. You will see Jesus resurrected. You saw him die. You saw him put in the grave. You're going to see him walk on earth again. And he promises them that in verse 7. Multitude. And this happened. Multitude and multitude. Over 500 witnesses at once it says. This saw Christ Jesus walk on earth again after he had been buried in the tomb. Obviously dead. Now obviously alive. Now, before we move to that last verse. Verse 8. And talk about that seemingly abrupt ending that's found right there in verse 8. Let me treat you like a skeptic for just a moment, okay? I want to treat you guys like skeptics. I want to give you 11 historical facts that you must deal with. 11, they're on your, they're on your sheet there. 11 historical facts you have to deal with these. You cannot not deal with these. Look, number one is this. A man called Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. A man named Jesus of Nazareth, called Jesus of Nazareth, he, he lived on this earth. Okay, nobody is legitimately contesting this fact. 
The question you must deal with, this is biblical and extra-biblical uh, research, all of that. The thing you must deal with is not, does he exist? But the question you have to deal with is, is he really who he claimed to be? Is he the son of God? Is he your only hope? Is he God incarnate, come to rescue? Second historical fact you must deal with, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was crucified. You may not believe that his saving, excuse me, his death has even any, any kind of saving power for you, but you cannot say that he was not crucified upon that cross. The, the question you have to deal with is not did he die on the cross, but does that death stand as a substitution for you? Where your sin was laid upon him at the cross, it was put on him. He took your punishment. He took your death. He took your hell. He absorbed your hell at the cross. That's the question you have to deal with. The fact of the matter is, he was crucified. Was it a substitution or was it not? Number three is this. Jesus was buried in a tomb not far from the crucifixion site. Jesus was buried in a tomb not far from the place where he was crucified. He was not buried in some distant, far-off land somewhere where you can make up something like he rose from the dead. He was buried right there where he was crucified. How do you get this by, people? How do you claim to be raised from the dead when your tomb is right there in the same place where you were crucified? The skeptics could come. They could say, come here. They're full of it. Let me take you to the tomb. Look at the body sitting right there. They're lying. And so the tomb is right there where he's crucified. What are you going to do with that? What is the reason? Number four is this. Jesus' tomb was discovered to be empty shortly after his burial. It's a fact. His tomb was discovered empty shortly after his burial. Jewish uh, historians, Josephus, uh, enemies like the Sanhedrin, these people, are, an enemy testimony in, in your favor is the best kind of testimony, right? They're against you, and yet they agree with what you're saying. That's the best kind of, they have no motive to be, they have no motive to say anything else. So, so here it is, enemies and even Jews who are not Christians confirming what we just saw in the scriptures, that the tomb was empty shortly after his burial. The tomb, if it was not empty, you've heard me say before, why not just bring the body? You've got all these enemies of Jesus. Why not just go get the body, show it to the people who are hearing that Christ rose from the dead and say, they're full of it, they're lying, here's the body right here. Why didn't they do it? Because the tomb was empty. It's a fact. That's that. So whether or not it was empty is not the question. The question is why. The question is why. And this is the point where you're tempted to give in or maybe somehow believe or give or cater to the silly Discovery Channel type uh, equations to come up with a reason the tomb was empty. Like the, the swoon theory. He didn't really die on the cross like the eyewitnesses said. Instead, he actually was alive still and he crawled back out of the cross and he, and he showed himself to his disciples and somehow convinced them he had risen from the dead. Silly. Back ripped open hung upon a cross, on his feet, on his hands. And then he takes a seven-mile jog to Emmaus. He, he doesn't look, he doesn't, he, he's okay now. He looks so good that he's actually resurrected. So never work. Or maybe, maybe the theory that they went to the wrong tomb. 
It's just silly Discovery Channel type stuff. These people were not stupid. They were not dumb. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. The one where the Roman soldiers are. The one where the big, the one where we observed him laid. We saw how he was laid in there. And he goes in to the tomb. Maybe the reason why it was empty is because he rose from the grave. Maybe that was the reason. Number five is this. The disciples had, ex- had real experiences. The disciples had real experiences that convinced them that Jesus had risen from the dead and was alive. Okay, now you, you may not believe that they saw the risen Christ, but you cannot say, you cannot say that they were just deceiving people. You can't say that they had some sort of experience that made them really believe that they had seen Christ Jesus risen from the dead. Now this is, I know this for many reasons. One of them is martyrdom. Martyrdom. All these disciples, almost every one of them, died a martyr's death. Just horrific type deaths where they were being killed and filleted and all of the kind of ways that they were being killed. And listen, maybe you can say they were deceived, but people don't go to their death as a martyr for a lie. They don't know that the body's sitting back at James' house somewhere. They don't know that, and then they go straight to their death as people kill them and crucify them upside down. You just don't do that. So you might think that what they saw wasn't the risen Christ, but you better believe they saw something. What did they see? And I'll tell you your options. They saw somebody that played, number one, option one, they saw somebody that played a really good trick on them, man, and they convinced them that Jesus was risen from the dead. Doesn't that sound silly? How would they do that? Or they experienced some kind of weird phenomenon of, of, of hallucination. All 500 people one time hallucinating that they saw Christ. It's just silly. It doesn't happen that way. What is the option? How, how could this be? How could this be that they were so convinced that he had risen from the grave? Maybe it was because he rose from the grave. It's a fact. Number six is this. These experiences radically transformed the disciples into bold witnesses of his resurrection, which led many of them to martyrdom. That's a fact. Whatever these experiences were, were, and I'm saying it's resurrection, they saw the risen Christ. It took these scared, cowardly, totally depressed men that Jesus had died, and it turned them 40 days later into happy, gospel heralds even to the point of death what did that it's a fact that it happened that they hid they denied christ 40 days later man they're screaming at the top of their lungs even to the point of death that christ has risen from the grave what did that to these men number seven is this the belief that jesus had risen from the dead was established immediately after the empty tomb was discovered We see this in the dating of the the letters of the Bible, the letters of the New Testament. We see this in extra biblical history. Okay, we see that it was a confirmed fact. It was a believed thing. It was a part of their faith that Christ Jesus had risen. In other words, this is not something that had developed over many, many centuries. It just developed developed into a legend somewhere. There is record that immediately after the tomb was empty, there was belief that he had risen from the grave. What can make this happen? How could it be this way? Number eight, the resurrection of Jesus was preached in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. 
the same city in which he was crucified and buried almost immediately after the empty tomb was discovered. I think sometimes in this culture, we tend to look at the first, the people of the first century and we just think they're stupid and we think they're just superstitious people. That's all we think. These people are not just superstitious people. They don't even believe that he has risen when the women come to tell them. They're not, they're not stupid people. They have inventions. There's things that have happened. These people are not just easily deceived. And yet you see right here in the same city in Jerusalem, not afar off. They didn't take it afar off somewhere and go to some distant land. And they said, hey, let me tell you what happened over in Jerusalem. A man had risen from the dead. No, in the city of Jerusalem, they begin to preach the resurrected Christ where it can be tested, where they can go look at the tomb, where they could go talk to the eyewitnesses. And right there in Jerusalem, multitudes of people, thousands of intelligent, skeptic people became followers, even worshipers of Jesus. Why? Maybe he rose from the grave. Number nine, multitudes of people in Jerusalem became worshipers of Jesus through the preaching of his resurrection. The message being delivered all through Jerusalem was not just have faith, just have blind faith, just have blind faith. The message was we saw him. We saw him with our eyes. We saw him walk on earth. We ate fish and chips with him. We saw it. And this spread like wildfire in Jerusalem among these people. Why? Because it could be tested. It could be seen. There was evidence. This man had risen from the grave. Number 10, Jesus' own brother, his half-brother James, think, his own brother James became a worshiper of his brother Jesus sometime after the empty tomb was discovered. Now, how do you do that? How do you make that happen? Anybody got a sibling? What's your plan to get your brother to worship you as God after you die? What's your plan? How do you do that? Maybe some distant land somewhere I could convince some global people. Maybe that can happen, something like that. But your brother who doesn't even believe you and you die and it is on record. It is true. It is a fact that that James, now what got him there? I'll leave that up to you. But that brother, James, worshipped. He called himself a slave of his brother, and he bowed down and worshipped him as God. How do you do that? Maybe he appeared to him from the grave, risen from the dead. Last, number 11, is this. Multitudes of people from outside of Jerusalem became worshipers of Jesus through the preaching of the resurrection through the preaching that's true whether you believe the resurrection or not it is true the multitudes of people in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem became worshipers of Jesus through the preaching of the resurrection why option number one is this everybody's just stupid superstitious and they enjoy being eaten by lions it's option one anybody going for that option number two is this he rose from the grave. The tomb was empty. Eyewitnesses saw it. And, the, and the, the evidence of it all just exploded on Jerusalem and exploded out of Jerusalem to where people bowed down and worshiped this one who rose from the dead. That's the one I'm going with. Chapter 6, verse 8. 
We're going to see in chapter 6, verse 8, how these women are going to respond to the words of the angel. And it says right here in verse 8, So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, many people, if this is the ending of Mark, if this is the last section, if this is the finale, many people have considered this a very abrupt ending to the book of Mark, to the gospel of Mark. It's a reason there would be things added, a shorter ending, a longer ending to try to round it off. But many have considered this an abrupt ending. So what's up with that? I do believe that this is an abrupt ending, but I do not believe that that is uncharacteristic of Mark, right? This is how he's been the whole time. He started this gospel abruptly. He started right in his ministry. The, the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And it just goes right into his ministry. Nothing about his childhood, like Luke. Nothing leading up to his ministry and John the Baptist. It just goes right into it. And all through the gospel of Mark, immediately, immediately, immediately. That favorite word of Mark, immediately, immediately. This happened, this happened, this happened. And then it gets right up to the resurrection. The announcement is made. The tomb is empty. Christ Jesus risen from the grave. And then it stops. And I don't think it's uncharacteristic of Mark. But I do believe that there's something else here I want you to see. There's something else here to the reason that Mark ends this gospel this way. This gospel ends in wonder and amazement that you see specifically in these women. They are amazed over who he is. They are astonished. They are terrified even over what their eyes have seen. Chapter 6, verse 8, it says, they fled. They go sprinting out of there. It says they tremble. This is a trembling of fear and reverence. Like you just saw the presence of God. They're trembling. It says they were amazed in verse 8. This is astonishment. It's literally they're out of their mind. They're in a state of ecstasy. They are going nuts here. It says in the ESV, they trembling and astonishment had seized them. And this is how the gospel ends. It says in the NAS, trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And it says at the end, they were afraid. It's the fear. The fear of being in the divine presence and majesty and glory of God. And here they are afraid and amazed and astonished and trembling and running out of that tomb. And this is how it ends. I want you to see this. Mark ends so many of his stories this way. This is how, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you see he ends so many of his stories this way. Just amazed. The amazed. Jesus did that. Amazed. Jesus did this. Astonished. Jesus did this. They were afraid and they trembled. It happens over and over and over again because Jesus is wonderful and because Jesus is amazing. I want you to see the pattern. Chapter 1, verse 22, it says this. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished. He's teaching, and what are they? Astonished. Chapter 1, verse 27. Then they were all amazed as he cast demons out. Amazed. Chapter 2, verse 12. And, and this, is, this is after a man has been healed by him. 
Immediately he rose up, took up the bed, and went into the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God and said, we never saw anything like this. Amazement. Chapter 4, verse 41. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the water and the sea obey him? He's calling the sea with a word and they're amazed and they're pulled back and they're out of their mind. I can't believe what he has done. They feared exceedingly. Chapter 5, verse 15, after casting out the legion, it says, Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid, terrified, amazed, astonished. Chapter 5, verse 33, after he heals the woman with the flow of blood, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Trembling before him. This is, this, this is all through the book of Mark. It's not over. Keep going. Chapter 5, verse 42. After raising a little girl from the dead, immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And how did they respond? They were overcome with great amazement. Overcome with great amazement. Chapter 6, verse 51. After walking on water, then he went up to the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. Chapter 9, verse 6, at the transfiguration. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid, astonished, terrified. Chapter 9, verse 15. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeting him. Jesus is amazing. And you see it over and over again. Chapter 9, verse 32, a response to his teaching. They did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask. They're terrified. They're afraid. Amazed. Chapter 10, verse 24. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Chapter 10, verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed. They were amazed and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen. They're amazed. They're afraid. They're all struck before this one. Chapter 11, verse 18. And the, the scribes and chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished, astonished at his teaching. Chapter 12, verse 17. Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar. And then it says, and they marveled at him. They marveled at the way Jesus spoke right here. Chapter 15, verse 5. But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. He's amazed. This is crazy. Mark is wanting you to see it. What is the point of this? We come right up to the end of this gospel. And what does he want you to see? Christ Jesus is amazing. He's astonishing. This is this is cause for fear and trembling and worship before him because he is incredible. MacArthur said he wanted to rename this book, John MacArthur, The Amazing Jesus, because of all this we see. And we see it in verse 8. This is how it ends. Um, you got chapter 16, verse 8, you got the ladies. 
They trembled, they were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The resurrection of Jesus is amazing. Christ Jesus is amazing. It's a miraculous, you think about the resurrection of Christ, just miraculous, just the fact that it's miraculous, right? A body came out of the tomb, walked on earth, ascended on high, he's still alive right now. It's amazing. What happened at the resurrection, you think of how amazing this is. God the Father vindicated the Son. At the cross, Christ Jesus vindicated the Father and he showed that God is a just judge who pours out all his wrath and then when he raised him from the dead, God vindicated his Son. That is the Son of God. That is my Son. He is God incarnate. He is the Savior of the world as he raises him from the dead. The resurrection is God the Father's amen to God the Son's final sermon at the cross. It is finished. I've purchased them all and God says amen. Are you imagine Jesus? You know, Jesus spoke to the Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Imagine him speaking that to God the Father. It is finished. They're all mine. Father, they are all mine. All their sin is paid for. And three days later, God the Father says, amen. Indeed, they're yours. They're, they're blessed in the beloved. They're saved. They're forgiven forever. This is the resurrection of Jesus. I hope you walk away. We've been through the gospel mark for a long time, and I hope we all walk away with amazement, amazement over who Christ is, glory, fear, trembling before him, worship over who Christ Jesus is. And let me end with the same question I started with. What will you do with this Jesus? What are you going to do with him? If he's risen, it implies he's alive. If he's alive, He's alive right now. He hears it all. He knows it all. He knows every feeling of your heart, every thought in your mind, every action that you take, everything. And he demands from you obedience and service that you come up under his lordship and he invites you into the greatest joy of worship and praise as you come before him as the amazing one. Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray for every person here that you would cause us, Lord, to see you in your word, that you are alive and that we could worship you as the living, risen King of all, even right now and for the rest of our lives. Help us, Lord Jesus, plant these words deep in our soul. Make us true worshipers. In Jesus' name, amen.